Welcome to the third episode of The Social Exchange. I'm your host, Mary Blackburn, and today I have a very special guest for our introduction, DJ Lucas. Um, he is talented, smart, funny, and oh so handsome. He is the editor and producer of The Social Exchange, and he is my partner in every way. I'm so happy to have you here today, DJ. Hello. Uh, now, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this introduction is because we are actually going to be talking about immigration, mm-hmm. um, both the process of immigration in America and also hear um, more about the um, side of immigrant stories and um, where they're coming from and um, really diving into how complicated and um, and how um, heartbreaking a lot of their situations are right. um, and kind of learn a little bit of, of how to remain educated and um, help in the situation. We are, we got to sit down and talk to professor Marquez and I am full of um, so much gratitude that she took aside time to meet with us and educate us. And, um, and she was, uh, she was really um, informative, but also she was realistic, but uh, not pessimistic. And I mm. and I think that's really hard in, in all this um, is yeah. to <laughs> remain optimistic through uh, so many of of the recent events. Um, so how are, how are you feeling about this? I know we talked about it a lot, but I wanted mm. to bring you on because I know it's something that's very important to both of us. Right? Yeah. Well, absolutely. It's uh, it's definitely like you know. I feel like it came as a surprise to everyone that didn't know about it, like in the masses when it came out. Um, and everyone's just kind of like trying to process that information the best they can. Um, it's, you know, a lot of people have a lot of different feelings on it. Um, but I think the important thing to think about is like, don't lose sight that these are real people that are being affected by this. And like, just really just try to put yourself in their shoes. Like, if I was this person, how would I want people treating me? Mm-hmm. And, like, not to, like, like automatically label as them as something. It's like, oh, they're a criminal, which, like, it that's not the case. Not everyone that comes to America from Mexico is a criminal that crosses the border illegally. There are a myriad of, of reasons why mm-hmm. people do what they do mm-hmm. uh, to try to provide better for their for their families and, you know, other reasons like that. Um, mm-hmm. So I feel it's really important in this time where everyone's kind of like going back and forth on like different facts and statistics and things like that to really just consider like the human element of it and just like don't forget that these people that you're talking about online are people mm-hmm. too. Right. And I think, you know, you were talking about labeling and so much of the rhetoric that is surrounding this uh um, a lot of the recent events with immigrations and just throughout our history has been building because there's just been a continuous mindset that um, kind of feels like a poison mm. that just is perpetuating these ideas that are just um, when you look at it and you and you educate yourself, it just doesn't feel like it holds any truth to it. Right. Um, and I think one thing that I... Um, feel about sociology is uh, a lot of the time people think we study we you know we make up all we we don't make up but we find these statistics um whether that's for immigration or social deviance or um different ethnicities or uh sexual orientation we we study all of these things we study all of these big groups and 
Uh, we do study stereotypes. We look at where, why they've come to be, and sometimes they're not always bad, but we also look at um, how does this affect that group? How does this labeling happen? What does that mean? What is the self-fulfilling prophecy of this? Um, which, of course, just means that this person you know, you tell someone something enough, they will become that um, a lot right. of the time. And uh, so I think what's so important uh, with sociology is that there are always outliers. And ultimately, um, no matter what you're studying, these are people, these are individuals. And um, it's important that ev even if you're a filmmaker or you're a sociologist or um, you're a reporter or you're just someone that wants to help, um, not to forget that right. um, and learn how to help. And I think uh, we really got to learn so much in this interview today. And I hope that the listeners feel that way. And mm -hmm. without further to do, um, I guess you guys uh, should go ahead and listen to the interview. Enjoy. Welcome to the third episode of The Social Exchange. Uh, I'm sitting here with Professor Marquez. Um, and first off, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we are going to be talking about immigration in America. Um, that is a very hot topic right now. Um, and I think that um, it really needs to continue on being discussed. Um, and I think a lot of the sociological side of it is um, not being discussed as much. It's so political um, that I really wanted to take a look at um, what is the sociology side of it. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Can you, you yeah, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do specifically? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am a, a PhD in sociology and I do specifically work in Latin America and Mexico. Um, and so my recent research is on immigration detention. And so we got a bunch of contracts from the government um, from the Bush administration to the Obama administration and how immigration detention was being run at the time. And so at that time, uh, we see that there's people dying. We see that there's deficiency. So that means that the, the policies that uh, ICE says that they follow, they don't actually follow. Um, and so part of my future research is um, looking at how these immigration detention centers um, serve deportation. Right. Mm -hmm. So what is effective about these uh, specific institutions and what needs to change? And a lot needs to change. Um, even in the Obama administration, we know that a lot of people were being deported. And now that uh, Trump's uh, executive orders have changed the way that people are specifically um, prioritized to be deported has kind of created an influx of priority deportations um, so mainly my work is one to kind of call out the deficiencies because a lot of this stuff um, wasn't being researched at all mm -hmm. uh, secondly what is best uh, for immigrants who are undocumented in this country mm -hmm. and thirdly to make sure that we tell the story of the people who are going into these deportation centers yeah that's um that must be very complicated because I feel um, when we are researching those uh, just uh, publicly, a lot of the time um, it feels like we're getting such mixed signals. Um, 
and it's really hard to find like what is actually happening and so much of the time we're looking at the american side of it and how it's going to affect us and how it's going to help or hurt us um so with that just because i think a lot of the conversation is with what immigrants do to our economy and a lot of the time i think that there's um, a false belief that they drain our economy and that they're gonna hurt us economically so could you kind of would you be able to break down what are the positive and negative effects um, that immigrants have on our economy in america right so um, a lot of undocumented workers specifically work in lower um, sector jobs, right? So California is actually the largest producer of our vegetables and fruits in this country, right? And they also hire the most undocumented workers, right? Um, and so all of this means that when you're undocumented, that you're not really covered by all the like worker rights that we, we see on plastered on the wall. Um, so they work long hours, right? But the, the positive aspects is that they contribute um, enormously to the economy. Yeah, I think I uh, read that it was something like $10 billion, and that is mm-hmm. with a B, <laughs> um, to our economy. And I think um, a lot of the time people kind of act like that's not what they're doing, that they're not adding to our economy, that they're taking our jobs. But as you just said, a lot of the time their their rights are not what we we as workers have in America. Um, and a lot of the time they're doing the jobs we don't want to do. They're doing the hours that we don't have to do because we have all of these workers' rights backing us up. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, because um, I know that that was a question kind of for America's side of it, but I just kind of wanted to start it with that mm-hmm. to kind of get an idea about how much they really are helping in a lot of ways. Um, so why are the reasons that people are coming to America? Right. Um, so a fun fact about me, I actually was undocumented at one point in my life. And so one of the reasons why my parents came is because they were living in extreme poverty in um, a suburb. It's not really a suburb. That's that's the nicer area. <laughs> um, it's It was a, a poor area of Mexico City called Nesobalcoyo. And in that area, there's a lot of violence, um, a lot of not even like uh, gang affiliated. There's just people are poor, right? There's garbage in the street. Um, actually, the place where my parents' home was was next to, like, the city dump. So um, it, they wanted me to have a future, and so that's the same narrative that you hear um, with people coming in. And so um, Mexicans, Guatemalans, Salvadorians, like, all of Central America uh, are having to deal with, one, poverty. The poverty is real. Um, and so we don't really see that uh, in rural um in rural areas of the United States, but they do exist, extreme poverty. Um, So when you're in your small town or your small city, you don't necessarily get confronted with poverty, the visuals of poverty, right? And so a lot of the times uh, in the United States, you're guaranteed an education, right? Like, um, Like, it doesn't matter if you're undocumented, if you're a person of color, right? All of these things have been ruled by our Supreme Court that you have access to education. Um, places like Mexico, if your kid doesn't go to school, yes, you get like the equivalent of CPS, but there's no real follow-up, right? Um, and we know that in the United States, there is issues with police, right? We, we definitely know this, but in Mexico, it's even worse, right? That the police are actually being paid by, um, 
you know, narcos or people who are in the drug cartel. Um, and people are scared to leave their house, right? And so um, when I was working in Mexico uh, on my dissertation, there was actually a, a whole little town being kind of taken over by drug cartels, right? Mm-hmm. And so what do you do when your your country is being kind of taken over a little bit? Um, and the other work that I've done, people have asked, um, like, you know, this is my situation, what do I do? And a lot of them have to do with threats of kidnapping, right? That their kids are being kidnapped or being threatened to kidnap. And so that's why they bring them over. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was actually uh, the case for one of my family members. He was being threatened to be kidnapped at like the age of 19. And so my grandpa was like, bring him over because we don't want him to die, right? Mm-hmm. So. Well, those are the realities, right? That people can't have education um, and housing, right? So in Mexico, it's kind of customary that like three families will live in a really small house, right? My dad was one of nine, and he specifically lived in one room, I think about maybe a little bit bigger than the size. Like, wow. And so um, you, you need you need a place to live, right? You need uh, food, you need the ability to work. And that's why people who come here um, end up working long hours in order to make sure that they can they can come and live, right? Mm-hmm. But in addition to like wanting the American dream, quote unquote, uh, they also come with a lot of debt because it's not uh, necessarily simple to come to the United States. Yeah. And that actually leads into my next question. Um, What is the process of acquiring a visa and getting into this country? Because I think a lot of um, of the conversation right now, I feel like people are when when we do talk about illegal immigrants, we're like they just need to come into this country legally. And it's like I'm pretty sure they would do that if it was simple. But then I've also heard stories of people taking 20, 30 years to get a visa. Mm -hmm. And so what is that process? Because it kind of, it doesn't feel that it's as efficient as as I think the American people perceive it to be. Um, So there is a a process, right? Um, But that process requires you to prove that you have money. So it's kind of interesting that the visa system in Mexico is one, it's guaranteed if you're rich, it's not so much if you're poor, right? Which is the opposite of what these people right. need. Right. So if you want a work visa, you have to prove that, one, that you have work in Mexico. You don't have work in Mexico because you work in, like, the underground market, right? Um, you don't have proof, like, tax forms, all that stuff. Um, again, then you have to wait the process. You've already invested lots of money. Um, most of the time, that money is being um, funded by people who are working in the United States, actually. Um, they denied my grandma a visiting visa because they were scared that she was going to work in the United States. My grandmother is 70 and can't walk. She she doesn't need to be rejected just for being yeah, to no. work. Yeah, wow. right? no. Okay. And so um, there's also processes where sometimes different sites um, make it easier. So different cities in Mexico make it easier to get a visa so people strategize. 
So if you go to like Tijuana uh, or even like Ciudad Juarez in the border, that was a little bit easier than going to like even Mexico City and the embassy specifically. Um, they also are very discriminatory against indigenous people in Mexico. We can't excuse just America for having its racism problems. Mexico and the rest of Central America are very racist as well. So they tend to not consider people who are indigenous because they're like, oh, they're just going to come. Um, and the process of getting a visa or even residency is so long, right? It took, um, it takes about an average of 10 years, right? Just to have a permanent residency in the United States. Um, if you overstay your visa, you've now put yourself in a gray area. Even to like get documents in this country, you have to kind of like, apologize to America. Well, that's what happened in what, in the 90s. In what way? Uh, so you have to write a letter that you're like, sorry that you crossed. Um, that was what my dad had to do. You have to write a, a sincere apology letter? Yes. And so there was a whole like medical examinations. I was young, so I, mm -hmm. I don't really remember specifics, but um, I had to ask, be answered all these questions about like, do you have AIDS? At seven, I didn't know what that was. <laughs> so I was like, no, I don't have that. I don't know what that is. Um, so... The visa process is long, it's costly, and people go do it over and over and over again until they get something. Um, what's happening now is that the Mexican passport is kind of being treated as like a less than passport. So when Canada opened um, visitors, right, that created at least some momentum where People are working in Canada, but they're not staying because they have the ability to come back. Mm -hmm. So when you actually close entry, you're permitting people like who cross to be like, well, we can't go back until we have documents. Mm -hmm. So that's the issue with this uh, immigration influx that there is no ability for people to like, yes, get their get their lives together. Um, and a lot of people who come to the United States don't want to stay here that right. long like yeah because they're leaving so many people back home right and so it's funny because a lot of times college students like when you leave your home you know you miss your mom you miss like even your dog you you like that that like douchey neighbor across the street <laughs> right you get like, homesick wow. for the weirdest thing yeah and so people like even moving to another state makes you homesick right mm -hmm. so the same thing happens with people like oh, my food's different people are mean to me i can't get like enough housing i'm working 80 hour weeks, you know? And so um, if there was a better system to allow mobility in and out, I think that one, it would improve livelihood for, for a lot of these poor undocumented people, but also safety. Cause they get it, they get, they're vulnerable, right? They're vulnerable to being uh, abused at work, um, abused uh, at their own houses, like housing and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Um. It sound and it sounds like it also um, and we'll we'll talk about um, the, the the I don't even have a word to describe how uh, upsetting the the families being separated at the borders was, but um, also that was already happening in a in a not quite such a harsh severe way, but you you know if you go I think um, you know for. Uh, students in America were like, oh, I can just go home for the weekend. And we still feel so homesick, but they make the decision to to go and, you know, you were saying your family did this to go make a better life and the sacrifices are mm -hmm. so immense. And I think a lot of the time um, 
when we do talk about people coming to America, um, we don't realize how how much they're sacrificing and also how hard it's still going to be for them when they get here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like they cross and everything's fine. America has a lot of problems, obviously. Um, so with with this whole process, what are the, what are the myths and misconceptions regarding um, immigrants and this country? And we already kind of talked about the myths of of them draining our economy. But what are some other things that you have experienced that a lot of of the of American society kind of assume or just expect? What are some things that you feel like you'd really like to debunk with that? Yeah, so one of the first things is that um, the myth that immigrants somehow uh, maintain the minimum wage lower than it should be, right? Mm. Um, That is a a specific thing that I find really hilarious because um, who sets wages? Well, yeah, the businesses, you know, (laughs) it's their incentive, right? I said, keep your um, keep your wages low so that you can make a profit, right? Um, and so the next myth is really specifically about um, like social services, right? That um, immigrants are are taking somehow like welfare, um, that they're um, sucking different resources that are for. Um, natural or naturalized Americans. Um, And that's really interesting because um, most of the time immigrants don't even go to the doctor when they need to um, because they fear that somehow giving this information will lead to a deportation. Right. And that was like even when before ICE existed, when INS was a thing. Um, So when you have people who, who rarely go to the doctor, right, or they don't want to bring their kids to different field trips because, you know, will you meet a checkpoint? In California, the checkpoints are a little bit more, like, um, harsher, right? Um, but it, it is a fear, right? You don't think about it. Like, the privilege of, like, going to the zoo. You're like, wow, yeah, that's, like, a fun trip to mm-hmm. the zoo with your with your elementary school kids. But some, some kids have to think about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another myth is that um, ICE hasn't been on public transportation until now. That's mm-hmm. false. Um, so uh, when I was a college student in Chicago, um, I would take Amtrak from Chicago to Albany, New York, and that's where my, my family is around that area. And so um, there was a bunch of times where like ICE officials would get on and ask people, like, are you an American citizen, right? Mm. And at the time I was, right? But that mm. fear never goes away. Um, and so they do ask. And if you didn't look American, quote unquote, um, they would ask you to step out of the train, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And it was always interesting who they would ask, right? It was always people of color. Uh, it was always someone with an accent. Um, so that, that particular... Um, taking you out has always been a thing. Um, the new thing is adding ICE officials to like DUI checkpoints. Mm-hmm. That hasn't been a thing before, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, specifically uh, when it comes to crime and immigration, that's the one thing that people are like, well, immigrants bring crime. But we know like so many studies, like it's almost boring how many <laughs> studies have been done on this that show that immigrants don't contribute. There's no incentive for them to contribute to crime. Yeah, and I th- that actually leads to my next question. Um, I think a lot of the rhetoric that's used 
um, with immigrants, when we pair them with words like illegal and criminals, um, that psychologically triggers a lot of things because those words are bad. Those those are um, words that um, understandably do um, have some fear associated to them. But I think um, it has really warped how we see immigrants. And um, so can we talk about um, those words, how they're used? Because I think obviously there's a huge difference between um, you know, a college or, or like, you know, a person on a train going somewhere, getting called out, um, about being in this country illegally versus someone that's like, I murdered someone and now I'm on the run. Like that's a bad person. And we can, you know, objectively say, oh, that's a criminal. This person Mm -hmm. did something illegal and should also be punished. Like that system seems very clear. Mm -hmm. But then when we're pairing it with, with immigrants, I think that that's why there's such a hostility, Mm -hmm. um, that's being built around the whole conversation um and obviously i understand that there is a legal side to it but can we is is there anything that you feel about how how those words have been used and how that is really constructing how immigrants have to live their life in america whether they are legal or undocumented um and how that that is all affecting the process right so um the process of of labeling is very powerful right um especially um how we know that the media uses these labels because it's easier right you don't you only have like 30 seconds to make your point in a preview before a news show Mm -hmm. so they're going to use simple words that really um impact and scare right and so um one of the things that uh that we see um, from time to time is uh, using the word illegal um, or, you know, whatever other slur exists um, to create a moral panic, right? Right. And so we see this as it's kind of like it starts with, well, people come in undocumented, right? The kernel of truth, right? Um, they're illegal because they created a crime, so therefore they're, they're labeled as criminals, right? And changing the conversation to making them seem like they've done something terrible um, makes you less likely to, one, sympathize with them, right? right? And so we know that that's exactly what happens in uh, the criminal justice system here, where, well, if you label them a criminal, they did that to themselves, right? And again, the people who counter uh, the separation of families and say it's good because they deserve it, right, shows that, one, the process of DVP humanization has worked, right? Mm -hmm. That they have um, succeeded in making someone less than they need to be, right? And so when it comes to that dehumanization and uh, disconnect, um, it creates less likely that people will care, Mm -hmm. right? And so people have been undocumented, like Mexicans, Irish people, Italian people, anyone who came and it, it erases that that violence that exists, right? Um, and so we see this specifically in, um, when it comes to like legal documents, right? So um, when Trump's recent uh, executive order to house families together, right? A lot of people were like, "Okay, good. He he did the one thing he was supposed to." Yeah. So not. I'm sorry to interrupt, but with that, I think. Uh, that day, I uh, obviously was happy that that happened, mm-hmm. but there was also, and and that's just that. There's no but. 
And there's another part of me that kind of felt like, okay, but this isn't fixing the big problem. And also this still happened. This should never have happened. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't erase it happening. And we still have to fix this and we still have to talk about it. Um, because it's not like, Oh, boom, these families are back together and all the psychological damage that was done is undone because we signed this document. Um, so with, with that, like what, how do they even get the, how do the, how do the families find each other after all so that. Um, the process is right now being run specifically by nonprofits because um, there is no incentive really for the government to re reunify, right? Also, um, like I said, ICE doesn't necessarily follow their own rules, right? They have a lot of rules. Um, and uh, it it starts like when you read the rules because I've have and I have no life and I just <laughs> read all of them. I need them. to I need to read them too. Um, they they promise like oh when intake you know we'll give you a like a whole full medical examination. Um, we'll ask you like what medications you need. If you're diabetic, we'll keep that on file so that you need like you know your insulin at certain times. Um, if you have heart conditions, you you can get your meds. Um, and so they always frame it like oh we're doing this great service, but then you find out well. Well, they don't really hire doctors at the same rate that they hire nurses because nurses cost less than a doctor. Right. Um, and so this process really shows that um, there's different ways around it, right? And so reunifying is really being done by volunteers, people who've been protesting. Um, and so the Vera Institute um, is specifically studying people right now in detention um, to give them access to um, free or affordable legal service, right? Because we know that separating families doesn't necessarily solve our issues. Also, people who are in the process of deportation have more incentive to stay in the country. Um, I think it's like over 90% of people who were like... Um, processed and uh outside of facilities will show up to court the next day because again you want to stay in this country therefore you're gonna um try everything in your power to remain here um so separating families i think that that was just a tactic to de like um deter people from coming um and we know in the obama administration when they had the influx of um unaccompanied uh what is it called? Unaccompanied children? Yes, yeah. Okay. Um, they necessarily, um, they came alone, but again, that shows you that um, they're traveling from El Salvador or Guatemala. Um, through Mexico, some of them don't even make it. Like, we don't even talk about how many deaths of children have occurred from from traveling from their home country through Mexico to the border, right? Um, and so having jails because that's what they are we just call it right. detention yeah um again shows that we don't care right that if we can do this to your kids we can definitely do this to you to you as a, a human adult yeah and that just shows like how far uh that dehumanization you were talking about has mm -hmm. gone when it starts to affect children um, obviously, it's horrible when it affects anyone, and by no means do I want to belittle that at mm -hmm. all. But I think philosophically, like there's rules that mm -hmm. children and and innocent are off limits to some of these more complicated um, violences that we uh, afflict upon each other, and then to see that that's 
it wasn't it wasn't the it was always a problem but to see it so blatantly disregarded and and accepted i think was what was so horrific about it because obviously these things have always been happening where we shouldn't pretend like they have and i think that's a lot of the problem is that we're it's mm-hmm. if it's if you don't see it um it's really easy out of sight out of mind and some people genuinely don't know but now we know and yes. what do we yeah. do now <laughs> yeah well, um and so part of the process of dehumanization is that you can't see your family members yourself within those groups right and we see this basically in every human rights violation, like the people who are violating human rights, they don't see them as people who are part of their family, right? Mm -hmm. And the people who um, don't necessarily know people who are undocumented or or they think that they do know someone, right? You don't know necessarily the whole story, right? And so a lot of this is just narratives that um, are kind of being suppressed, right? And we say, oh, well, you know, we don't necessarily need to focus on immigration um, because, again, illegal, criminal, whatever, we should be focusing on veterans or we should be focusing on uh, different things that are more present, right? But um, there are different conversations, right? We can't just say, oh, well, the kids are suffering, but that's not really something that affects me personally, so I'm not going to care. Um, And so a lot of it comes from just donating money and writing to your senators and uh you know i i i write a lot and so they're they're probably bored with me right now um (laughs) no that's i mean i think that that's very important um i it i think also with you know talking about um and this isn't really my expertise and also you studied sociology this is more for linguists i guess and historians but um we tend to forget that we are all immigrants we were all immigrants at some point everyone in this country has come from an immigrant in one way or another you know whether you know me obviously very british and irish um and you know eventually like my you know, my if my aunt or something does um, one of those like family tree things, they're gonna like find, you know, when we were back in a different country. Um, so I think a lot of the time um, we try to build this disconnect of what is American and what is not, and um, what this country is and what it isn't. And I think. Um, for me, there's been a huge disillusionment um, just coming into adulthood and um, finally understanding politics um, at such a prevalent age of social media where things are not quite as hidden as they always can be. And we're talking about things um, in a way I haven't seen before in my lifetime, um, where we're finally starting to see the repercussions of denying a lot of the underlining racism and hostility in America and how profound how that profoundly affects other people. Um, so I think um, with that, um, with the current um, going on goings on uh, with with the modern problems, um, it feels really hopeless sometimes. And I kind of, I 
when it was all going on, I kind of just wanted to lay in bed. I didn't want to check the news. I didn't want to do it, you know, anything. Cause I was like, I can't drive to McAllen and help. I could write to my Senator, but you know, sometimes it feels like, Oh, like what is that going to do? Um, so, uh, with that, like how you said you write, um, letters to Congress. What are what what would you say? Like, what are the things you also recommend doing in those moments where things feel so hopeless and kind of also what you're saying? Like, sometimes we're like, oh, we should be focusing on this or we should be focusing on that. There's a like, you can focus on both things. It's not either or. Um, we can do both. But what are some things you do to to help fight through that? Oh uh, yeah, so I mean, my work is very depressing. It's mm-hmm. deaths in detention centers. It's like you know specific violations that exist. So it, sometimes it is hard, right? And so what I do is basically stay informed. Um, so um, I l- look through the news to figure out stories that aren't really being told. So we know about the, the the kids on the border, right? We know a lot of the stuff that's happening in California, and we know a lot of stuff that's happening in Texas. But we don't really un- know immigration beyond those two points right Mm -hmm. and so um a thing that i've just noticed is just like finding out what's happening and so um there was a raid in tennessee in a meatpacking like uh facility and so they were hiring a lot of undocumented people because again cheap labor that you don't necessarily have to regulate um when you uh work overtime right you get time and a half but they didn't do that right they actually found that the owner of the facility was like in violation of a lot of stuff not just undocumented right Mm -hmm. he had unhealthy like working conditions Mm -hmm. um but that raid led to arrests but also led to i think over 400 kids not going to school the next day oh wow in that one county in tennessee And so when we find that out, we know that deportation, yes, exists by separating, but it's also something that is um, a structural violence, right, against people who are living in these places, right? So that disruption wasn't just one day. It's now going to have effects until, like, the next month, right? Because people are going to say, well, if my kid goes to school, am I next, right? Um, If you're giving a ride to someone and you have... um, a residency and they're undocumented you can actually get stopped for human trafficking in certain parts really so i did not know that yeah so that that idea of like oh well um i'm a person who is you know driving someone right are my are are my potential vulnerabilities at stake here too right mm-hmm. so a lot of times we thought okay undocumented once you have a residency those problems go away but we're seeing that that's not necessarily true mm-hmm. either um the protests that happened on june 30th i think was just the beginning mm-hmm. of of people just voicing uh their complete discontent with what's happening mm-hmm. and a lot of people feel the way that you do mm-hmm. right so um when i went to um the protest on the 30th, I went to that protest in actually College Station, Texas. Oh, really? Okay. Right. And so I don't know if you know about like Aggie Land. Oh, both of my parents went right. there. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's conservative, right? Yes, but it is. <laughs> there, Brian, the next town over, is populated with a lot of people of color, um, both of Latin American origin and black people as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so they've protested in front of, I think, 
it was a representative something mm-hmm. i don't remember um but we were standing like in the blazing hot sun mm-hmm. with signs uh, as people were driving right and so some people were like yay beep for approval and you mm-hmm. felt good about yourself but it was really interesting to see the ones who were completely not happy to see us mm-hmm. with signs right mm-hmm. um and so there was a guy who actually stopped right in front of our demonstration like busy street we're like what are you doing there's mm-hmm. cars behind you but he just wanted to say well i don't agree with what you're doing protesting and well what the kids come here but how do they come here and he just wanted us as a group to say that they come here illegally yeah that was that like word. his gotcha moment and i was like uh, i don't feel like conversing with you so there's people yeah. you're not gonna get through right because right. they refuse to see it as something that dehumanizes people right and they they refuse to see it as a legitimate uh yeah a, a structural and systematical impact of violence because it is violent right right uh we don't think about violence that we just think about it as like assault right but things like that destroy your whole life mm-hmm. is violence right right and so the impact of being detained is just not just physical but it's also psychological mm-hmm. right so the effects of these kids um psychologically is going to impact them throughout their whole life of mm-hmm. like not wondering you know some of these kids are like young infants right, right. and um for for women who are who have kids right um we know that babies like they're clingy because you're the safe person right yeah there's been infinite studies done on how crucial uh the fundamental bonding mm-hmm. at the beginning of life is with mm-hmm. especially with your mom and a lot of the time they'll there's um I'm sure people listening know about this. I'm sure you know about this, but a lot of the time you can kind of trace even um, even someone that has a lot of mental illness or even, God forbid, uh, is a very violent person as an adult back to how they were never held as a baby and they never got human contact. They never had that bonding. And by no means am I trying to say that, you know, all these people are going to turn out to mm-hmm. be horrible at all but but we have to we have to look at the long-term effects of this and the the fact that this doesn't just end as you're you know kind of saying this doesn't just end like as soon as they walk out of that detainment center this is going to go on forever because they don't understand and something i think you mentioned earlier you know they asked you you know if you had aids and you didn't even know what that is Mm -hmm. so um with a lot of the questions that are being asked and the way things are being explained um, in the process to to people in these situations, um, it sounds like a lot of the time it's not even, they're not even trying to make it where you can understand. And in, in a way, that's kind of continuing that dehumanization because I right. think a lot of the time it's not it's so it makes perfect sense why they don't understand like why would you i didn't know what aids was when i was seven Mm -hmm. and there also there's a language barrier and no one and not no one i don't speak any other language Mm -hmm. besides english and i wish i did um and i know a lot of people that are bilingual but i also know a lot of people that also don't speak other english uh, other languages it's just not as common um so a lot of the time i think that that goes towards that dehumanization of like oh you're dumb we don't need to explain this to you um so what are the is that do you feel like that's true that a lot of the time it's not even explained like in these detainment centers it's not they don't take the time to even so again like i said usually the process means like you do uh intake uh, and so 
it's also significant to say that um, detainees are not criminals, right. actually. In the defined like ICE contracts, they actually are just administrative detainees specifically out of the process of being deported out of the country, right? So they actually guarantee the safe removal of people. Um, that's like one of their one things. Like if, if someone dies, they have to do it the investigation because that specific thing in their contract is legally binding, right? And so in these facilities, again, they have a contract with the United States, uh, specifically the Department of Justice and Homeland Security, uh, to basically, one, test to see if you have any diseases. And that's, again, um, to make sure that if you do have an illness, that you're not going to, like, contaminate someone. Um, and that specifically is to figure out, like, you know, who is um, sick and who needs medication? Because again, if you need heart medication and you don't get it, you're going to die, right? Yeah. And um, people have actually died of things that could have been preventable. Um, there was a person who died, I think, in Texas in one of the border uh, facilities of rabies. You're like, how Whoa. did someone not catch someone? Rabies. Rabies, <laughs> right? And then there's times where. Um, in California, um, there's a facility in Adelanto that's like uh, west of Los Angeles, and it's one of the biggest uh, detention centers in California. I think there's about uh, 10, and there's uh, about like 20 in Texas, because Texas has the biggest border specifically to, to Mexico, um, and they're actually building a, a new one. Um, oh, okay. So there's going to be even more. Um, but they uh, had a detainee who was suffering from stomach pains. So he goes and gets checked. Um, they give him Advil. And so he's like, okay, two hours later, I'm still in massive pain. Um, again, they're only giving him Advil. He files a grievance, right? Um, which means that basically it's kind of like customer service equivalent yeah. of like Complaint. so-and-so did this, right? Mm -hmm. And so he just writes this really hard like like heartful letter saying like hey um no one's listening to me i'm in pain um all of this stuff and then he writes another one saying like they don't care they're liars if they say that i'm fine he ends up dying of multi-organ failure for a preventable uh disease right and so this is that was the first death um and after his death they found that it, it was the facility's fault for his death right uh, they only demoted the medical um, person, the me medical manager. Um, so he he used to be um, the manager, and I think they just demoted him to like assistant manager. And they never he hired. Still works. Yeah, they never hired a new person, right? And then another death happens. Same thing, basically preventable disease, right? And that was in 2012. So this isn't like early 80s, early 90s. No, this is like recent. Um, so all that specifically shows that um, these detention facilities um, don't operate the, the way that they should. They're actually very deadly. And so um, kids, right, who usually you don't really like, sometimes they can't verbalize what hurts, right? Um, that anxiety creates a lot of stress on the heart, right? We actually know that uh, the stress of of like life right racism all that stuff actually negative impact negatively impacts african americans more right and so we know that um black males live 
like the least yeah um, compared to their counterparts right. and that's again uh, a complete like you know result of that structural racism over mm-hmm. time right right and like so the childhood mm-hmm. adverse childhood experiences where like the more adverse experiences you have the more problems mm-hmm. both physical and mental right. you'll have later on in life and all of a sudden these kids that already probably had pretty high scores mm-hmm. went up a lot higher right and there's so many right. studies that prove that that's, yeah. Yeah, and so again, it, it goes back to our conversation about that dehumanization, right? So even like uh, most of us don't have like bilingual um, abilities, right? But we did have access to, um, in certain states, right? Like um, languages, right? And so what did everyone wanna take? Right. They wanted to take German or French. Right. right. And Spanish. Yeah. People took it, but they're like, oh, it's an easy class. Right. Yeah. Because we don't think the use of Spanish as something that's like prestigious. We think of it mm. as the, the spoken language of people of, from Mexico. Right. Mm-hmm. People who are below us. So even that process even starts mm, with just wow. language um, and, and how people start to get upset. Right. Right. That, you know, you're speaking your your home language. Yeah. I've have um, friends and I won't use their name, um, but I have a friend specifically who told me this really um, this just very disheartening story where she um, is bilingual, which I think is so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and she works um, someplace where there's a lot of, of Spanish-speaking people, and so she uses her Spanish. And then um, one day, um, she was using her Spanish the whole day, and then um, a uh, English-speaking person came up to her, and she, you know, she just said "Hola, cómo está," and then the woman like started yelling at her and just started using slurs and was like, you know, don't use that language with me. And she was like, I, um, I think she, <laughs> like, was like, um, I don't remember. She had a really good comeback, actually, mm-hmm. and I always wish that I was as well as quick-witted as her. Um, but just like the systematical. Mm-hmm aggression that just is like that and i think that that's such a really good way to illustrate um like we held all of these other languages um so so high above spanish you know and that really just kind of Mm -hmm. that is in the embodiment of how we kind of think Mm -hmm. of all these different immigrants in this country because we do have you know we have immigrants from everywhere not just from the southern border um but so much of the way we think of those people is that we're never questioning if they're adding to our economy we're never questioning how intelligent they are if they're if they're criminals like every place has criminals you're always going to deal with that there are already criminals in this country um and so having that whole conversation really just I think shows how horrifying um, and how embedded it embedded that thought process is in individuals and in our society. Right. And so again, if you are less likely to care about these things, then you won't really be um, in tune with, with what the injustices are. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we deal with our problems in this country just by confinement. Right. Mm-hmm. That's how we think we solve these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that mass incarceration does not work. Right. Right. Um, our crime rate stays the same. F- and the only reason that it's slowly going down is because like the people who were arrest- arrested in the 80s are now getting out currently. Yeah. Right. 
Um, but the case I wanted to, to mention um, that I found really interesting, so a lot of people think that if you have documents that you have nothing to worry about, right? So in Seattle, um, the Tacoma like processing center, so it's like a detention center, um, already was under investigation for a lot of, let's just say, problems, because <laughs> there's just a lot of them. Um, they uh, in that time uh, they um, found a young family. Uh, the dad was being deported, right? He was undocumented, but the son was a DACA recipient. He had all his documents in order, and so as the ICE official was deporting his dad, which is already like, you know, very devastating to see your parent in that way. Um, he was actually taken as well. Um, so he's like, I'm a DACA recipient. Um, and I ripped it, threw it in his face and arrested him too. And they supposedly did that because they said that the young man was gang affiliated, right? And so by putting, again, brown people, black people's faces with gang violence, criminality, that makes it easier to make the case, well, they deserve it because they're contributing to the crimes that we see in this country, right? And so that process really showed that um, right now, as we see it, um, ICE is just about getting the numbers up of deportation, right, to satisfy their own pressures. Um, and currently we see that there is um, push to r remove due process, right? Yeah, that, yeah that's a, that was one of the questions I had. Um, what, is that, what does that do? <laughs> right, so um, like I said, I, I've looked at uh, facilities from the early 2000s to 2012, 2013, um, and so they're already deficient in, when it comes to legal aid, right? And so um, some of the detainees have access to a law library, right? If I had access to a law library, I would not know where to yeah. start, like, right? Okay. <laughs> Thank you for giving me a library, right? Yeah. And the worst part is some of them are not even translated into their right. no, like their native language, right? I can hard I mean I'm sh I I can hardly understand a a law book and you know, I've lived here my entire life and right. I still would be Right. beside myself with frustration. Right. And so they have um, a software, uh, I think it's NEX uh, US or something, and uh, it basically helps you look up legal aid or something. Um, and some of them don't even have that software or computers available to them. Right, of course. Um, and so getting rid of due process, one demonstrates that, oh, you just come here for the intention to um, you know, suck up um, resources, right? We're actually removing the ability to say, hey, I, I'm a refugee or I'm running from something. Right, which being a refugee and seeking safety is not illegal. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we're actually criminalizing that specifically yeah. um, for everyone, not just people from South Central America, but everywhere. Um, and so the, removing legal help or the process um, really shows that we it's all about removal, right? We see that that process is really just about making sure that it's um, a specific type of immigrant who comes in. Um, so even though um, cent uh, Central and uh, South Americans don't make up the majority of people who are undocumented in this country, they make up 90% of the people who are detained, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of those people are men, 
right? Um, so again, we, we're seeing it being racialized. A lot of people don't want to talk about that, but it is a racial issue, right? Um, then we we see specifically um, that people want to um, want to help these people, right? And again, the Vera Institute um, has d- devoted a lot of resources to make sure that they study specifically um, how legal help can help your immigration case, right? So uh, getting legal help, right, getting a lawyer when you're being deported um, is actually a catch-22 almost because, like, um, you're, depo- you're being processed out, right? So you get a lawyer, it'll help you maybe in- improve your chances of staying, but it also keeps you in detention longer, right? So um, one of my uncles who was being deported last um March, he actually asked for legal aid and he was in deportation uh, in a deportation facility in New York for about seven months. Um, He lost about 20 pounds, uh, was not looking right, and we were a little bit worried about him, right? And so in his case, the lawyer was not able to to help his case out, right? But we know that um, the way that the immigration laws work before and after Trump in before Obama and and previously just aren't necessarily speaking to how to, to one help the the community but also help like again getting rid of people in small towns who work right that's gonna like negatively impact those economies right even cities are gonna feel it right so a lot of people don't realize that they depend on the labor right um and even like i think two years ago was like the protests of the day without immigrants Mm -hmm. um and so um a lot of the critiques from the latino community was that um they're actually hurting their own selves because one you can get fired right two um you stop working but the the businesses that are, are owned by latinos with documents are also hurt in the end right so they're they're trying to figure out a way to kind of send the message and again it's hard because um, a lot of them complain that there is no like unified message and there's not a unified leader right mm. Um, but we'll definitely see changes with the new Mexican president. So um, we know that um, Vicente Fox was very colorful with, with, um, with Trump and he was before Peña Nieto. Um, And so Peña Nieto um, comes from more of a conservative economic party that they're more about privatizing Mexico. Um, So a lot of people died during Benyanito's six years in office. Mm -hmm. So unlike in the United States where it's like four years and you can renew for for another four, in Mexico you only serve six and that's it. So in those six years, um, gas went up, right? So we see an influx. So whatever is happening in those countries are also negatively impact. And a lot of things we forget as, as an American uh, community is that America has also played a role in a lot of the elections in South and mm-hmm. Central America, right? We we helped certain people who didn't really deserve to go in power uh, for the purposes of of ensuring um, our interests, right? Yeah. Which again, that's just how a lot of countries work. But we can't just say, oh, this problem's happening, and now they're flooding here, and we had nothing to do with it, right? Yeah, <laughs> but you didn't. It doesn't that. It doesn't feel like you should have to specify that. But here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, with 
um, with detainment centers, um, you said your uncle was one in one in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, how, when you are in a detainment center like that, what what are the rules? Do you get to see family? Do you get to leave? So, um, one, they have to process you, and so um, they put your name, and sometimes they get your name wrong, which is very terrible because if you're trying to look them up and then you don't get the name right, you can't figure out where they are, right? Oh. Again, that's another deficiency. Um, so they're supposed to classify you, so an administrative detainee has done nothing. But because of the new changes of priority, people who got like DUIs like 10 years ago have already served, right? Um, they're a community service, whatever. People make mistakes, right? Let's not pretend that like only people of color get DUIs. There's right. so many, right? Right. Um, so uh, it, it prevents people from moving on from mistakes, right? Um, and in his case, he was detained, but they separated the men and women. So sometimes they do that. Sometimes facilities don't do that. They're supposed to separate by classification. Um, there's multiple facilities throughout the country um, that don't separate, right? Um, there's things called family centers, but those are not like the faces of what's hope, like happening. Um, in Arizona, um, they were actually, uh, so sometimes the government um, makes a deal with like a local jail, mm-hmm. right? And they have like, they call it like an ICE facility, but it's really a local jail mm-hmm. um, that's being used. Uh, so people who've been arrested in the community and people who are being deported are being mixed in, right? So they have a mixture of population, which again is another facility. We're not actually ensuring the safety in that process. Um, and then again, illnesses, the stress of it all. Um, if you, again, you do have the right to complain, right? To file a grievance, but uh, when ODO, so the Office of Detention Oversight is who's responsible for all of these um, deficiencies. Like they're supposed to review periodically these detention centers and say, okay, so-and-so does do this and this. Um, they go in and they, they look at which standards are met. Um, when they're not met, they just say, oh, they need to do better, and they give some recommendations. Uh, they do interview um, both the staff and detainees, but selected ones. Uh, mm-hmm. So in the selected ones, they'll ask them, like, what's life like? Are you treated well? Um, a lot of re- detainees report being um, verbally abused, right? So frequent like verbal slurs being called a wetback and so on, right? And again, like that continuous stress of being treated badly. They're not supposed to restrain you, right? So say a detainee is having a stressful moment, because again, anybody who's in a small contained space will lose it. Like Mm -hmm. that is a thing, right? Um, They will actually restrain with like um, in a chair. So they call a restraint chair with like straps everywhere. And again, that's crazy because they're not criminals they're administrative detainees they'll call it so if if they have too many like criminal detainees people who have actually committed crimes um they uh if they have less administrative detainees they'll actually throw the administrative detainees in solitary which again you're not supposed to do Mm -hmm. um and so all of these just show like a periodic uh abuse of power right the and when the detainees complain, they'll say, okay, these were the complaints, but don't take them seriously because they're self-serving opportunists. Like that is the actual quote in about 20, 
three different audits um, done through, I think, the Southwest. Like, don't, like, yeah, they complain, but don't take it seriously. Like, oh, medical care doesn't feel good. Um, I, I can't, um, you know, the food is bad, right? So we usually think, oh, like people who complain about food um, are probably exaggerating. But uh, there's one facility that actually took a picture of the food and it was horrendous. Like it was like a piece of toast and maybe what looked like scrambled eggs. I can't tell you what it was, but you're kind of like, okay, like these are legitimate claims. Um, they have the, the data shows like that they are being mistreated, but the government says don't listen to them. They're, they don't actually represent what's going on in these facilities. Um, and facilities with high turnover rates, um, specifically in California, there, there is a lot of turnover rates for um, like people who are like COs, like, like the equivalent of a CO, a correctional officer. But again, they're not called that, but a lot That's of them. That's what they are. Yeah. Um, they complain that, oh, well, um, the detainees, uh, they talk back to me. They want to treat them like they are like in a jail, like mm -hmm. in a penitentiary, and that's not how they should, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's actually a high turnover rate because they're using force that they're not supposed to be using. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the detainees uh, was having, uh, I guess, like an emotional episode. That's what the the contract said, um, the audit said. And uh, they, they took him in, they used force, and the only thing that the oversight office found deficient in that case of excessive force was that when they started beating the detainee, they turned the camera over. And then after they were done, they turned it back. And so it wasn't like, oh, you, you beat someone up, that's the issue. No, you turn the camera the wrong way. So you're aware so, that this is wrong. <laughs> yes, right, so that, again, they're, they know that they've made mistakes, right? And th right. that was, I think, in 2010. Wow. We can only assume what's happening now because wow. the biggest industry right now is like border correction, right? right. Um, and so, yeah, the, the fact that you that uh, the oversight office will say, oh, you turned the camera or you didn't show your face before you beat someone up. Like, that's what we find that's wrong. what's problematic yeah um shows again that process of they're not they're less than people who mm -hmm. deserve respecting dignity and that's what um the de deportation process at heart should be a process that doesn't strip someone of their human like human rights it's but also them. their dignity their yeah. respect right um and with so with the I think that there's been a lot of news coverage over the detainment centers in McAllen, Texas. Mm -hmm. um, but how much do you know about those detainment centers that were being used to hold tender age children? Right. So again, tender age specifically usually defined as below five, seven, uh, depending on your um, definition. Um, the the facilities themselves are again secretive in the sense they don't really want people to know what's happening, right? So um, if you listen to um, senators and representatives who have gone down there to like ask, they can't tell you anything because they themselves have been turned around, right? 
Um, and so uh, they specifically, again, deportation in this country has always been kind of behind the, the scenes. We don't actually know what's going on because they don't want us to know what's going on. The data that I had had to be um, re received kind of uh, through a lawsuit from the National Immigration Justice Center. They, we, they literally had to sue them in order to get the freedom of information, right? Because everybody can have a freedom of information if you work like for the government that they're supposed to give you that information. Um, they'll give it to you sometimes, but they'll redact everything. So mm -hmm. if, if I were to give you this piece of paper and we're like, oh, here's this paper and it's okay. just in black, then it's yeah. not useful, right? So what's happening in McAllen just shows that, again, it's it's almost working as like a daily operations of like, this is just what we do. We deport, but we're not really going to tell you how we do it. We're not going to tell you the, the conditions. We're not going to tell you exactly how many kids are in here because they won't re like really res um, tell us the numbers. Right. Um, and if you do file a Freedom of Information Act for those facilities in McAllen, they, they will take maybe two, five, seven years to get. Because, again, they don't necessarily want you to have that information right now. And, again, a lot of it has to do with, one, again, protecting the interests of the facility um, and privacy reasons. But, again, it's a federal, you know, state-run um, facility. They, they have to give you that information. Um, but what we know is that the kids have to go through the court process alone. I saw right? a video on that, and I... I was watching it and I was like, I, I don't even feel like this is real. Like, the, right. like, like, there's no common sense to that at all. There's nothing about that that makes sense to me. No, right. like, I and I, I know I need to be objective, but like, I just that doesn't make any right logical sense. Right. Like I remember being confused when translating for my uncle who got a speeding ticket. Like I can only imagine being like that young, right? And being in that room with people I don't know, right? So it, it shows that it's not true due process because they're not at the age of consenting, right? They're mm -hmm. away, their parents are being stripped of their parental rights, right? And so that just shows that the process is being really warped right mm -hmm. and so in times of crisis right um or perceived moral panic as this is because there was no real like immigration there was no cri crisis right yeah this was just um based on the priorities and also just um showing coverage right uh, mm -hmm. again makes it makes people think that it's just an influx that people are just coming in and, and coming in right but that's not really the case um and actually mexican officials have actually started to run on the promise that they don't need that people in mexico don't need to go to the u.s anymore like that that they're going to change the government but we'll see if that's mm -hmm. a true thing right um so uh mccallan really shows you that um that anything is possible when it comes to deportation policy, right? That we will go as far as putting kids in facilities without them knowing where their parents are. Um, there was a case where a mother actually sued um, in order to get her child back, right? And again, money. Mm -hmm. um, and that process, her lawyer was able to successfully unify. But again, the system sucks so much that, again, just a name that's wrong, an age that's wrong, you won't be able to find them, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
a year ago, um, my my mom works for a Catholic church, um, volunteers, not really works, but um, she works with a lot of people who are undocumented, and they basically were, like, um, talking about how they um, uh, specifically um, couldn't find someone at the border. Mm-hmm. And so um, they spelled the name wrong, mm-hmm. and so we, we weren't able to locate him for three days. Um, until he called his family members. Um, and again, it was like a letter that was wrong, right? Because mm-hmm. if you go to the ICE website right now and you know someone who's detained, if you type in their name and their, their date of birth, you should be able to locate them um, if all their documents are right, right? But if they're wrong, then then that creates a kind of gray area. Where are they? Um, so it really... Uh, I think the push should be for uh, research-based policies, which we don't have in this country, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, some people are starting to push for it, but it's not something that we really see within, like, even our politicians, like Democratic and Republican at large, right? So I think as um, we go into the future when we make our voting decisions, we should make it based on, like, are the policies that they're presenting, again, bipartisan, uh, like, mm-hmm. just are they research-based, right? Is that research actually valid, right? And is that research actually telling us something that we need to do better or change completely, right? Mm-hmm. Um because keeping families together, that movement is, is again, run specifically by um, people who are dedicated to, to these injustices, right? Um, there's actually a push for people who are bilingual to sign up. I don't remember. It's specifically for bilingual Chicana women um, that you can sign up and be a translator. So, again, even the littlest things like that, like if you can just donate, like, you know, a day to that that already tremendously helps, right? Translating, um, even at your local like place, um, if they need something, uh, translation is like the number one thing that people are looking for right now, either like Word or um, written documents. Um, so along with, with that, what are the, the organizations, other organizations people should volunteer for and be giving their money to and, um, all that so um the well-known one is raices um, right and so again they've been doing this for a while now um but the any organization small or large even in the local um i know that in college station there's like more mobilization within the local compu- community to like combat like raids specifically um so again look to your local organizers right because again immigration detention is not just like a specifically like wide nation thing it's like it's a local issue right so that specific town that was impacted in tennessee like that was like a thing that they're gonna have to deal with that's Mm -hmm. gonna impact their local economy Mm -hmm. um their whole education all that so um, look to the organizers. They usually like the Spanish-speaking churches are the ones who are the most active. And again, if you're shy, like they're more than they need to see who their allies are, mm-hmm. right? And so that was one of the things during the protests that um, I got to see with my own eyes. Like um, the immigrant community looked shocked that like people were there for them, mm-hmm. specifically because again, 
usually we think the conservative towns there's no hope but people are compassionate right and uh again it doesn't matter what political party you're in if you care about it you can still have a conversation right? right and i think people need to look beyond like those specific lines and be like okay we need to just help right now because they're they're going to continue these harsher policies and things are going to get more um chaotic within Mm. like these detention centers and also within like the raids and the threat of raids Mm. right um so again just donating your time locally even Mm. to just translate or help someone or you know figure out what's going on uh, or how you can help um is a huge start Awesome. Now, where where do you suggest you get unbiased information? Because I completely agree. I think um, we really do need to look at more research-based uh, findings. A lot of the time, I feel very skeptical about er- like anything that I learn, whether it's about this crisis or anything else going on. Um, in the information age, a lot of the time I'm like, I don't even know if this is real. I don't know where these people are getting this information from because um, everything can be altered through editing. Um, so where where are some places you would recommend people um, deep dive into that research and get uh, valid information? Right. So it's really fit, like hard, specifically just if you get your information like on Twitter, it's really difficult right right? (laughs) yeah um and a lot of people get their their news from social media right right we definitely know this um so because we are specifically talking to a larger student body here at texas state right you guys actually have like access to researchers right Mm -hmm. so um again reading raw material so like that means like raw data um so if they reference something in the news that you're like, okay, cool, but I want to read it for myself, mm-hmm. right? So that's kind of what I did with the e, the EO, um, the executive order. Um, when Trump was like, okay, we're going to uh, unify the families again, I read it specifically to figure out, okay, what does it actually say? And so then I was like, okay, yes, unification, but it also says uh, criminalization and also you may be detained for longer periods of time, right? Mm-hmm. So it changed a little bit um, more of the conversation. No one had to tell me that. I read it myself. Um, then you can look at specifically if you are a college student looking at, again, the data, the the research that has been kind of done already. Um, the Vera Institute, again, publishes a lot of stuff. Like, they don't have, they give you the data, right? You don't have to, like, read their reports. They don't have any affiliations with any political parties. Um, again, Different research institutions exist, right, that are not, like, university-affiliated. Sometimes people think, oh, well, universities have really liberal or conservative professors, and therefore they can't give me non-biased information. I think that sometimes that's true, but I also think that a lot of professors don't really care about the, like, mm-hmm. party lines. They care about more of the, like, information, the truth, right, um, the research like, how can it be explained in a way that's, again, it's not going to look good for any political party at this moment, right? So um, my my suggestion would be to, again, if they reference things, 
you learn how to, to cite your sources, so did they. So cite their sources, see if they're like actually telling you what's in the document. If they're just quoting one little section, what is it that they're talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really hard not to like go towards news that's, again, a little bit less problematic. It's like or, more digestible. Yeah. Because it's hard. Sometimes you read a headline and you're like, okay, well, today is going to be a crappy day. Um, yeah. But then you have to kind you kind of have to to read through and see, okay, what it is that they're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very hard I, I, for me since 2016 to have conversations with people who believe the opposite of me, mm-hmm. right? But I don't think that you... Um, some people, for their own emotional capacities, need to separate, which <laughs> totally, like, yes, take your emotional labor and take it somewhere else. You don't mm-hmm. need to, like, change anyone's mind. Mm-hmm. But we definitely need to, like... Talk to people who maybe haven't voted or who are interested um, and who are thinking about those things. Because, again, the research is important, but our actions are even more important. Yeah. Uh, Now, my last question um, is because you study sociology, what what do you think is important about being a sociologist and studying immigration? What are some of the things that through your career have, um, I don't know if you've had any epiphanies or any moments where you're like, this is why I chose sociology and why you think that's so important to this, um, not only this conversation, but also just um, the work that you do and um, trying to make the world a better place. Right, so um, the, the moments that I've had, like my aha moment, was definitely when I was working on the immigration facility information because um, I had known about deportation. And again, um, certain immigrants like myself who are now documented, we kind of forget the struggle because, um, again, I, I got citizenship at 18, so I haven't had to think about it for a while, um, for a long while now. And so you had to um, – I, I had to think about things that are um, – kind of in line with our discipline, right? And so when it comes to looking at even like when we were talking about like the certain uses of words, right? In the documents that I study, like instead of saying death, they say permanent injury beyond medical intervention. And you're like, wow, like I had that moment where I was like people like actually write ways to like hide the wrongdoing, right? How do you like accidentally kill someone and say well it was their fault that they asked for advil instead of harder pain medication Mm -hmm. right or that they didn't complain hard enough Mm -hmm. right so i kind of uh took my discontent with what i was seeing what was happening and um again i'm in a position of privilege now in power to kind of give the information out talk to people and and so as a sociologist i use all of the people that you have to take in your one-on-one class so you're like why will i ever care about durkheim why would i ever care about you know marx is not my favorite right but i at least i understand him enough to be like oh i see why people want to go towards that because that seems like like an option right or um you know when people use religion to excuse um, certain things, right? You're like, oh, interesting, because this is like a like a cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even the the how to create a moral panic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
if you take a deviance class and you go over like the recipe of how to make a moral panic, you're like, wow, like we, we really are doing a really good job of, of baking this yeah. moral panic at the moment. I'm actually taking deviance and immigration uh studies this semester and i think that's going to be very right. enlightening um uh yeah did you have anything else to say i'm sorry i interrupted uh, no worries um so basically as a sociologist um it's not just about one discipline it's about multiple disciplines so you have to look at you have to understand the history right you also have to talk about you know how we change the conversation in this country a lot right um and so I think it has it has to really start when you're an undergrad thinking about okay you know these injustices and when you leave if you're not doing any better you didn't really like grow as a person mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. and so uh i think that using all those all those things that you learn even if you're not going to go to like to grad school after college i always tell like students like you know, you're going to live next to people, you're going to live in communities, you're going to contribute to the economy. And if you are still a terrible person after like, not using not just in my class, but all of the like, the like, the scholarship that you have access to, um, it's still significant, we still do sociology, even if we don't think we're doing it. Um, right? I, yeah, that's one of the things that I think um, led me to want to do this podcast and why I um, am so passionate about sociology is because one of the things about it is that it really does lend itself to so many different conversations and so many um, different things that we need to improve on. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the other things about it is that I think when people hear about it, I, people will ask me a lot, like, what exactly is sociology? Because I think it's something people hear a lot, but they're not, mm -hmm. they're kind of scared to ask because they're like, I should know what this is, but yeah. I don't. Um, and a lot of the time, I think what's really um, been something that I keep on finding a pattern of is it's constantly researching that which is kind of hidden, as you were saying, but it's also kind of feels like it's hidden in plain sight. It's like these things that, whether it's a sentence that you read and some research that you realize has been reworded yeah. to excuse um, a process, um, is it's really deep diving into those things and it affects all of us. Um, and I think mm -hmm. a lot of the time when we talk about immigration or even racism in this country, um, sometimes I, I think um, when people don't really see it, um, they think it doesn't affect them. And to me, I kind of, uh, especially studying sociology, you kind of start to realize how everything is interlaced and how um, if, if you, you know, have a friend whose, uh, like husband is an immigrant and they are being affected by this and that friend's mm -hmm. important to the, to you by extension, it affects you mm -hmm. or, um, you know, and that's just a very vague, yeah. uh, example of that. But, um, yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way to put yeah, and I think I have a little bit of hope for the future mm -hmm. in the sense that I kind of have to. But also, <laughs> my mom told me a really funny story. She cleans houses in uh, upstate New York. Mm -hmm. um, and she has had, the, like, she has one house that she's worked for since she got here. Um, and, like, I worked with, with her at one point. Like, so I know this man very well. Okay. Um, and he's very wealthy. His ex-wife, he's had several at this point, but the first one, um, the original one, uh, she's actually really 
uh, close with the Trump family. There's actually a picture of them like at dinner or something at her house. And so after uh, Trump won, my mom is is kind of shady, and she would just cover like put the, the picture frame down on the floor so she, he would know like I don't like this. Mm-hmm. But he he's kind of used to my mom's humor at this point. But they had a conversation about immigration. And that was like the first time my mom's like, okay, he's never asked me. And he's known that she was undocumented at one point, that she has kids who are in college, uh, who have finished college. And so he was like asking, and then he's like, I just didn't know. I just thought people come here with no money. And she's like, they come here with like debt, threats, like everything. Like they come here the same reason your forefathers came here, the reason that they stayed here, right? And so he was kind of like um, a little bit, one, like he likes to argue because he's a very hardcore Republican. Um, but she said that he, she heard him talking to his family on the phone about what she had just said. Mm. Um, and so she's like, if that old man, that old white man can like definitely talk to his family about this stuff, um, they just, they don't know, right? A lot of people don't know. So she's like, I'm just starting to have conversations with people who actually ask me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, that was kind of one moment that I was like, okay, like he really is a little bit problematic, but he, he had his moment of like, okay, maybe I need to reevaluate what I believe and think, right, now that I have this information, and, and that's how it kind of starts. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that every person of color has to um, start having like the, you know, come to Jesus moment with me, <laughs> but... It definitely, it helps to talk, right? And you're not going to, don't go into a conversation thinking that you're going to change their mind, but definitely just give them the information. Just educate, yeah, mm-hmm. and try to enlighten each other. Because a lot of the time, it just, people don't know. And a lot of time, I'll talk to someone, and they, I mean, much like this conversation, they, they give me a lot of information that I just didn't know before. Right. Mm-hmm. And again, it, ignorance is fine, but once you have that information and you choose to remain right. ignorant, that's on you. Yeah. Well, I think that that story is a great way to end uh, this interview. So I want to thank you so much yeah, again. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I um, I can't thank you enough. I feel that you've been insightful and also uh, encouraging. And uh, thank you again for being on the podcast today. Right, thank you.